Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba. Welcome you to the September 13th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. The primaries today, folks, it's got to be one of the few that's remaining ones. They're in Delaware, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. And you know your, your job is to make sure your friends and loved ones are all voting in those states. Today, my guest in the first segment is Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines. She's California president of the National Women's Political Caucus, and she's going to examine state and local races with women running in the midterm elections 2022. Lots of ground moving under the campaign with all the little red dots. Blue state action here. And in the second segment, returning to the show, is UCI professor Kathleen Traceder. This time, she's on, she's a full-on candidate on our Irvine City Council elections. Energy, climate goals, and democracy are on the city council ballot buffet. An Irvine candidate forum will be hosted by Irvine Watchdog and moderated by our very own Richard Matthew on September 29th at 7 p.m. So Irvine Watchdog website is going to set you all up. That may be necessary since not every single candidate makes it possible for me to reach them for these nice little interviews I do over here. Kathleen will be our first look under those local candidates. We'll be right back with Carrie Ann in uh, just a, a shake. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. My first guest with a big platter before us is Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, California president of the National Women's Political Caucus. She is the director of government and strategic affairs at Vista Del Mar Child and Family Services, an attorney currently working as a consultant at some, con- well, other community affairs and other strategic film elsewhere. That was an earlier day job. She is the president of the National Women's Caucus of California, as I mentioned, president of LA County Commission for Women. In addition, she is an appointee to the California Board of Accountancy and director of National Women's Political Cox, L.A. Westside Political Action Committee. She comes to us today from her office in West L.A. Is that about right? That is correct, okay. Claudia. Thank well, you. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines. It's always fun to talk with you, Claudia. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Carrie Ann knows how dangerous it is when we set up interviews or we just sort of get downloaded on what's going on in this crazy world. It's dangerous to start a call because we've got we always want to cover so many things. So this is the most dynamic season. I imagine, Carrie Ann, that your organization that you have ever experienced. Take your pick of what <laughs> are the most impactful critical factors. I want you to lead with what you think are the most critical right here in. Well, Claudia, I, I, we keep saying I can't, this is the most important election of our lifetime. And then, you know, it tops the last one. So uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about is the dynamism of the candidates that are running oh, up and down the ballot, you know, particularly here in California. I'm, as you said, I'm based out of Los Angeles. And we are really excited to have Congresswoman Karen Bass running for mayor. And, you know, this looks like, you know, one of our strongest opportunities to potentially get a woman elected as the mayor of, you know, Los Angeles. We've never had a woman mayor and, you know, one of the you know largest cities in the world. And to never have had a woman leading the city is quite a remarkable distinction that, you know, we really should shed. But then we also have city council races that are here in L.A. that are you know, really interesting, at least one of which was decided in the primary. Uh, Eunice Hernandez defeated longtime political veteran Gil Cedillo in the primary using a grassroots campaign to upset veteran political city council member elected official. And then we can just go all the way up the ballot to the federal level. So we're just really excited to see not only the numbers of women who are running, but the quality of their campaigns and the success that they have been experiencing. It's been hard, you know, for women to make inroads since we, particularly since we've transitioned to the top two, you know, election format. But 
uh, we seem to be finding a little bit of the secret sauce, and you know, hopefully this election will yield some better results for us in terms of gender parity. And I guess the trend that there, there was a drop-off in 2020 of women overall in legislative positions here. So there's this with those that are that made it to the top two from the primary. That trend can be reversed. Then it can. It can. We were concerned that we were going to see a drop-off in the number of women, particularly in the state legislature. That's you know kind of been my focus as the president of NWPC California and some of the other groups that I've been involved in. But we actually have seen an increase, a slight uptick in the number of women who made it through the primary this year. So overall, and then, you know, we can dig down a little bit more and sort of evaluate whether they are women who align with, you know, our organization's priorities. But it still is significant to see there are more women who are running more successful campaigns and making it further along in the process. So the coattails of Vice President Kamala Harris, is that is that palpable in the work you're doing, Carrie Ann? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's so much, I don't know if we can talk about it anything other than experientially or anecdotally okay. right now. I know that there are, you know, definitely a lot of black African-American women who have been inspired by her success. And we have seen also, it's notable in this election cycle, we've seen an uptick in the numbers of, you know, women of color who ran for office and who have succeeded in making it past the primary. So I, you know, I like to guess and speculate that Vice President Harris's success has had some impact, you know, at least in terms of sort of making the adage, if you see it, you can be it, a little bit more true. But I think it'll take us some time to really say definitively that her election as, you know, shattering that sort of sub-glass ceiling had a real impact on the elections or whether she is part of a greater momentum of increasing the number of women who are running for those higher elected offices. So, you know, a metaphor comes to mind as you speak, Carrie Ann, and maybe along with shattering a ceiling is maybe I, and when I see her appear, and we know they, she appears more places than she gets coverage. That's just sort of the way it works. But she's, yep. setting, she's setting more places at the table. The table's getting longer and there's more plates, place settings. Most definitely. I think um, we, those of us who, you know, play inside baseball, we are watching where certainly the vice president is. And, you know, the vice president is, you know, second to the president. The president, it's the president's administration and the vice president follows along. But I think that it is important and notable that the number of convenings that Vice President Harris is overseeing on, you know, some of these really critical issues is something to take note of and is a bit different, I think, than some other vice presidencies or it could be compared to some other vice presidencies, you know, depending upon the president. I think the leadership that she has taken around abortion rights and protecting women's reproductive health care access has been is really critical and important. Uh, she's not only convening civil rights and civil liberties organizations and community-based, you know, advocacy groups. But you'll note that she's convening state attorney generals and governors and other, you know, local elected leaders and really standing out as a leader around strategizing about how we can, you know, make sure that we turn back the tide on not only the Dobbs decision, but the incremental decisions and, you know, legislative changes that have occurred that have been incrementally rolling back women's reproductive freedom. So is Dobbs in California, is that like the biggest topic? And I'm not putting words in your mouth. It's a question. Uh, is that the top of mind for your targeting voters in California and and especially in, let's say, close congressional races in California? Undoubtedly. I mean, 
<laughs> you know, well, our organization, our mission is is to get pro-choice women elected and appointed into leadership positions and in into office. So we have been, you know, leading on this issue since our founding in, you know, 1971, 1972. So we have seen that our reproductive rights have been tenuous over time and have watched the, you know, the decline. But we welcome the company. We welcome the, you know, we welcome folks to the fight uh, right now. And, and we are definitely glad to see not only that legislators in Sacramento and Governor Newsom are being really articulate and proactive about passing laws to enshrine women's access to, uh, you know, we're, you know, we talk about abortion, but it really is just the plethora of reproductive health care that women need. And, and ultimately, you know, it, it comes down to independence and autonomy. So we're glad to see that, you know, that it is at the forefront. We're glad to see and hear folks using the word abortion and you talking about women's health care. I mean, it's about more than abortion. Like to see and hear people talking about the experiences of women around health care, around being able to live their lives, the choices that they have to make in order to work and to have families and to be caregivers and to be friends and companions. The fact that that is out in discussion in mainstream, for lack of a better word, you know, discussion and conversation, I think is very significant and is important in bringing women into fuller, equal participation in society. Well, I'm going to not belabor the point of too many of these interviews, but it just sort of I have been taking anecdotally men, some mainly older men, who have no clue what a pregnancy gone bad, uh, how that necessitates various procedures that would fall under those abortion bans that, that, that would not allow that to take place until it's like almost too late. So it's just there's some pretty graphic stories that are being told now, and it's sort of like, you had enough jobs as it was with National Women's Political Caucus election nearing, but you've got to sort of like work on public health literacy. It's not a matter of, it's not the, the choice, it's care, just care in general that looks pretty antiquated at this point. I don't know if you're getting more and more vivid as you're trying to get closer and closer in on some of those really tight races. For those of you just joined us, my guest is president of California National Political Women's Caucus, Carrie Ann Farrell Hines. And we're talking about, of course, the general elections, just about, what are we, up, six six weeks, eight weeks yeah, away. Yeah, less than eight weeks. Yeah. Less than eight weeks six away. eight weeks away. So, yeah, with what, the vote-by-mail ballot. Vote by, and vote-by-mail. <laughs> so we already have the vote-by-mail. that they're, they're going to be out. That's just, that's the way it works in California. So now we talked a little bit about, well, Prop 1 was implied, what you're doing to codify in the Constitution. I didn't realize until, you know, after Dobbs that California didn't have the constitutional protection that, that other states, I remember Washington State, when I lived there, when uh, when I was a teenager, it was codified as, a, a, I mean, a free ac- access on demand to abortions. And I think it was in 1970, a year or two before Roe v. Wade. So I, I didn't realize California didn't have that. So that's what Prop 1 is about, ladies and gentlemen. So so do you want to say anything about how that sort of rolled into the literature for candidates, or do you want to talk about additional topics, to, uh, issues? Um, I think let's, let's talk in about some additional topics. I think this is, you know, pretty straightforward yeah. for, you know, organizations like ours that have been, you know, not only fighting to increase the number of women who are in office, but fighting to protect our, like you said, our health care, fighting to protect our rights. This really is about autonomy and you know abortion is just the tip of the spear of women being able to be fully autonomous and independent in their lives in society which we are not you know we are not and so we are not the standard i mean when you even think about something as simple as furniture and the creation of sidewalks they are not things are not made with women in mind And, you know, that is the larger fight that we are fighting, that we are equal members of society and, 
you know, in order for us to be able to live fully, we have to be able to live independently in autonomy and have, you know, absolute uh, autonomy and ability to make choices over our lives. So let's talk about some other, some of these other, you know, races and some of these other topics. Well, let's, what you got for me, Claudia? Let, well, I think we need to talk about all the women running in Orange County. They are not all created from the same cloth. And you always, you vet all of the, the women that are running on your classic question. So you want to talk about our little near and dear 47th district with Katie Porter running against Scott Bob. Scott Bob was on my show prior to the primary, and ladies and gentlemen, Katie Porter will be on my show on October 11. So that, and she'll be live. So you want to talk about the 47th? Well, I think the redistricting, as we've talked about before, has definitely made Congresswoman Porter's race a bit more challenging than she would like. But I think that the combination of the swell of, you know, engagement and support at the local level in the down ballot races, because you all have a number of, you know, women who are running and, you know, candidates who are running down ballot, I think that will help. Certainly, Congresswoman Porter get over the finish line. You know, we have had this sort of tradition or history or inclination to kind of have races be decided before the election. Like we're looking at polls and, you know, we're, you know, trying to predict, you know, the direction that things are going to go. But I think that a win is a win. 51 wins over 49. And so as long as Congresswoman Porter continues to do the work of being in the district and, you know, talking to her constituents, which I think that she has a good reputation for connecting with her constituents uh, and being present for them and talking about the issues that are relevant to them and passing, you know, getting, introducing legislation and making herself known on hearings to get that vision with her constituents. I think that's going to work to her benefit, but we're going to have to, we can't let up can't ease up. We can't think that we've got it in the bag. I think that the last several elections have shown us, you know, if nothing else, you have to work up until the election day. So that is, and we have on in the second segment, and she's uh, in studio now, but we, we do have a city council candidate who, it's an interesting progression from the moving from the lab and becoming very alarmed at current events from 2016 forward and sort of spending a little less time at the lab and a lot of time with activism, with feeling more skin to the game. So that's going to be one of our city council candidate choices here in Irvine, Kathleen Trasseter. She'll be on second segment, folks, so stay tuned. But I, have you have you met um, Kathleen Trasseter? You haven't? I have not. I have not okay. yet. All I right. just get to hear about Orange County through you and and our. We have a caucus, a local caucus there, and they've been very busy working on those local races and then working with the state legislative candidates. And we have a number there in Orange County who are, who you know, we've supported and who are putting up a good show. So now there are other women running. Some of two of them are incumbents: Congresswoman Kim and Congresswoman Steele. But you have a different relationship with those two women, those congresswomen. Yes, because our caucus is the state arm of the National Women's Political Caucus. And so our we are, you know, both a you know training organization and a, we support candidates with volunteer help, but we also have a PAC. But our PAC is only supporting state and local candidates. It's our federal PAC out of our national organization that is engaged in supporting uh, women who are running for Congress. So while we uh, definitely make recommendations to the national about who to endorse from the local level, it's actually the national PAC that makes those endorsements. And they are in process of considering these races as we're coming up on the, the last days before we get these ballots in the mail. So just take a moment to talk about how, what is it that is on your template, though, for endorsing candidates? Well, first and foremost, we ask candidates their position on choice, on protecting women's 
access to abortion care and other forms of reproductive health care. Because as you said, it's not just abortion that, you know, people comes to mind, but it's the things like the Plan B pill, you know, that can be used as an emergency contraceptive device and also birth control is under attack and challenge as well. You know, we are fighting against pieces of legislation and efforts, you know, of different corporations and uh, nonprofits to exclude coverage for birth control and other forms of reproductive health care. So when we are interviewing a candidate, we ask her position on choice. Sometimes our candidates get tripped up on the issue of parental notification because a lot of times um, women think about it in the context of their own lives. If I had a daughter, I actually have a daughter, and they think, you know, I would want my daughter to come to me, you know, and talk to me before she went and got reproductive care, before she thought about having an abortion. But the sad reality is that many um, women, many young women, are in circumstances where that is not an option, you know. And so to have a young woman's ability to find health care, to find doctors that will help her when she has, you know, experienced something as traumatic as rape or incest or, you know, other circumstances that may lead to an unintended uh, pregnancy. And for her to be able to access that support is really critical. So we ask that question. We often counsel our candidates on, you know, on that perspective. And generally speaking, when you have a deeper conversation about it, they recognize that as an elected official, they're going to have to think about legislating not just from their own perspective, but for the protection and perspective of women who and people who are not like them. And uh, so that's sort of the first step. Carrie, on just a moment, if I can ask, though, is it... I'm just wondering, is this a teaching dynamic or is this a policy sort of a checklist or is it both? Because, I mean, somebody could sort of roll it's back. The, okay, so you bring and it's so both. we and quickly with the other ones, like there's sexual harassment, there's equal pay and there's some other things that um, I just want you to yes. quickly summarize. The Equal Rights Amendment is very important to us. We have fought against that was the sort of the linchpin of our founding was the passage of an equal rights amendment. So at the national level, we have been fighting very hard to get that over the finish line. And so we do ask candidates, you know, to take a stand on their support for the equal rights amendment. So those two issues, your position on choice and your position on the passage of an equal rights amendment are critical. And, you know, then particularly when we're talking about candidates running in municipal elections, there are often local issues that impact, you know, whether or not uh, a local caucus makes an endorsement. Uh, but that just kind of is dependent upon where they're located, it the depends. races, the, the conditions of their race. So the Orange County National Political Women's Caucus, they're watching us and you're you're watching the L.A. area municipal candidates. So but we're, we're going to get to cover one just shortly. So how much effort are, do you spend, Carrie Ann, on defining women's issues, not just women as candidates? And when you have two women opposing each other, you've got the template that you've already vetted them on. But so, do you spend a lot of energy on people saying, right, she's a woman, but she's not checking the boxes we need checked? I mean, is, do you spend a lot of time on that, Carrie Ann? We do in terms of, you know, that's generally after we've made the endorsement. So you asked kind of two questions there. Yep. Um, one of them is what, what happens when we have two women who are running in a race? I'll, I'll take that second. I'm going to go with, you know, first with the, you know, sort of the question you posed about what about the whole, like, are you just supporting her because she's a woman? That is often the default, I think, of people who don't really want to have a much more nuanced conversation about candidates running for office to ignore that choice is a very important public policy issue and that a candidate's position on choice can be critical and, and can be a bellwether for how they will, an elected official, will legislate on other issues that impact women, that center women's issues, that center gender issues. We strongly feel that, and in our experience have you know learned, that a position on choice is indicative of, you know, how a elected official will center women's equality. You know, so 
while, you know, we do have to fight against the accusation sometimes of just uh, selecting a candidate because she's a woman, we push back by having that very in-depth public policy discussion about why we focus on choice, why we focus on the Equal Rights Amendment, and when a candidate is articulate and, you know, steadfast in her support on those issues, that is how she earns our endorsement, and that's how she earns our support and how she earns our money. And uh, I now can... on the issue... Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, on the issue of when we have two women who are running against each other, it just really depends on their positions on those issues. It's a situation that we are encountering more frequently and that we are having to adapt, you know, particularly with okay. the top two, top two primary system, election system. I'm sorry to rush you. I, I really want to get out a last question about this Friday, the National Women's Political Caucus statewide. You're going to be hosting California Secretary of State Shirley Weber in a Zoom. Everybody can then could attend that if they want. And this is getting at election administration. And I know I'm not giving away your handle, Carrie Ann, but mm-hmm. I know on Twitter and other places we're all watching how just sort of loading up the local registrar voters is a way to sort of stymie them from running really good, uh, I mean, just to wear them out and turn staff right. away, turn poll workers away. So will Shirley Weber, Secretary of State, talk about that on the Friday Zoom session for everybody? Most definitely, most definitely the importance of being just really diligent and that that is a tactic of folks to just like throw sand in the gears and Secretary Weber is going to talk about some strategies for making sure that and and talking about why it's important for us to protect access for everyone but also the particularly the impact on women if we are not successful in this upcoming election. So I hope that you all will join us in WPCCA.org and you'll be able to see not only the registration for the event, but you'll also be able to see some of our uh, endorsements and the candidates that we're we're getting behind in the general election. And remind me, is that noon on Friday? I forget what time it's it is. Noon on Friday, noon on Friday. Yes, it's and so 12 pe- to 1 p.m., and it's available for anyone across the state to join us. All right, there you go, folks. You don't have to go leave anywhere. You can just pull it up to make that your lunch break or your... Uh, your whatever break. So, Carrie Ann, mm-hmm. again, I thank you for giving of your time on this show and your service. My guest was president of California National Political Women's Caucus, and she is the government strategic affairs director for Vista Del Mar Child and Family Services. Thank you so much again for being on this show today. Thank you again for having me, Claudia. It's always fun to talk with you. Take thank, care. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with... Kathleen Traceder, UCI professor. She's candidate for the Irvine City Council. Energy, climate goals, and democracy are on the menu. Thank you for staying tuned. My next guest is Kathleen Traceder, one of the least six candidates running to fill two seats on the Irvine City Council. It would be more authentic of me to refer to her by her first name as we've been on this show, I think, over four times. Kathleen is the Howard Schneiderman Endowed Chair and Professor of Biology at UC Irvine. For 30 years, she's led an internationally recognized research program and educated the next generation of scientists and college graduates. In 2017, she became a leader in the fight to make UCI a safer place for women and has since founded and funded the Tracita Randerson Fund to support women and marginalized groups in Orange County. In her newfound activism capacity. She's co-founder of the grassroots group OC Clean Power toward establishing renewable energy programs, a member of the City of Irvine Green Ribbon Committee, involved in reducing plastic litter and air pollution in the city, and co-founder of OC Clean Power. I mentioned that already, that organization of over 30 nonprofits, businesses, school organizations, and faith groups that eventually this led to the founding of Orange County Power Authority, one of the largest renewable energy programs in California. We're going to talk about that, too. 
So with so much skin in the game, you can hear she's got, she's joining me in studio to talk about her candidacy. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Kathleen Trasseter. Hi, Claudia. It's good to be here. Well, it's it's really, you know, folks, you have no idea how cool it is to have guests in studio. And actually, that's, that's that seat where she was on May 31st, Scott Baugh was in that seat. Whoa. And then on the next day, he was on Tucker Carlson. I thought, well, there, there that, you go. that things happen. They sizzle in Studio A. Exactly. Well, so it's campaign season. And with all the platitudes, which yours truly has severe allergies toward, uh, pro tip folks, you can find out a lot about a candidate from their websites, the details, the codes, endorsements, and alliances with those endorsements that are made, the graphics, they're all excellent predictors of how those candidates are going to vote if they're elected. And I'll try to do my part now. We go into nuance on this show so you have something to go on. Now, Kathleen, you bring climate expertise, climate activism to your candidate portfolio. Let's have you talk about your role, your approach, and your suggestions for resolving where we are at this point with the Orange County Power Authority. That's 17 days about left before many of us, most of us have to opt into one of three choices for our electricity distributor. Yeah, you're starting off with a hard question. That's great. (laughs) I respect that. So um, back in 2017, um, you know, I was teaching a large lecture class on climate change. And um, for those of you who have been in large lecture classes, you may feel anonymous when you're sitting in the seats. You may feel like the professor can't see you. But believe me, standing in front of the lecture hall, I can see everybody's faces. And uh, it just so happened during one of our lectures, um, President Trump had said that he was going to hold a press conference in the Rose Garden to announce um, his decision on whether to remove the U.S. from the Paris Climate Treaty. And so we watched his press conference during that lecture. And as he was talking and announcing that he intended to withdraw the U.S. from this climate treaty, I was watching the faces of all the students in the lecture hall, and I could see how dejected and hopeless they seemed to feel. And it really struck me. And at that moment, I decided, look, I am not doing enough. Um, I have, you know, I've been doing climate change research for, you know, 30 years or so teaching climate change. It's not enough. It hasn't made a dent yet in our policies. So I needed to get out of the lab and the classroom, get into the community and fight for renewable energy here in Orange County. And so I helped found OC Clean Power, as you mentioned. It took a lot of work to gather all these stakeholder groups together. But we asked every city in Orange County to adopt renewable energy. And the best way to do that, the easiest way, is for cities to found what's called a Community Choice Energy Program, where the cities are able to break their contracts with SoCal Edison or whatever other monopoly is delivering their energy and instead pick their own power sources. So after a lot of work, many years, we were successful and we got, um, we got the city of Irvine, um, Huntington Beach, Fullerton, Buena Park, and Lake Forest to form a new energy agency. Um, they called it OC Clean Power. And the idea was that with this agency, we could choose 100% renewable energy if the community wanted to deliver to every resident and business in these cities. I was very excited about that. Um, We absolutely need to do this. The only solution to climate change is to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. That's the only thing that is really going to work. We can absolutely reverse climate change. We changed it one way. We can change it the other way. We just got to reverse reduce our greenhouse gases. Now, Um, Unfortunately, OCPA has run into some hurdles that some of you may have heard about. Well, Um, we've covered them a lot. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I'll give a brief sum up. Um, Unfortunately, the CEO who was um, hired right away, um, he didn't have any energy experience. um, And that is very unusual for a CEO 
of community choice energy programs like this. Every other community choice energy program in California of this size has a CEO with at least 12 years of experience, as much as 35 years of experience in the energy industry. And you need to have this experience. So I'm just, I'm going to try to get you to race through that story. We've covered it a lot, but I just want you as a candidate, when you saw his appointment as CEO, did you say, "Uh uh-oh, we have just jumped the track. We have, the train is no longer on the track anymore. Is yeah, that, is this is a little forensic work. Here? Yeah, because you're a candidate and we want to know how you think. And, and this has to be solved. I was. Yeah, I was very concerned, especially once I looked up his record and found that he had ethics violations and so forth. And so, you know, we tried bringing it up with the board of directors and to no avail. And so we ended up needing to um, go go public that the CEO is not well. He doesn't have the qualifications that we should have in our CEO. Um, But also he had started making some decisions that I just felt were not the best decisions for the community. And so um, ever since then, we have been trying to watchdog OCPA as much as we can. It's been very challenging. They haven't been as transparent in their practices as one would hope. And so right now, the, you know, the cities, the residents in the cities are they have the option of opting out of OCPA. Um, I have to say, I really, really want OCPA to succeed. OCPA is important for our climate change goals. If it fails, I doubt we'll have another community choice energy program like this in the future. And so I, um, I want to make sure that it succeeds. And to do that, I think we really do need new leadership in that agency. And so that is what we are working on. Um, When I had decided to run for office, it was before all this came to light. Um, But now it gives me extra motivation because I would like to get on the city council and make sure that we have that change in leadership that the community needs. And so uh, as a candidate and as an elected official, you have a lot of arms and there's the there's the advisory committee and there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of connections that you have. It's important for listeners to know what sorts of ways that some of this can be resolved. Um, so is, I, I mean, we're, do you have, I mean, we are 17 days away. I still, yeah. I don't know yet. I, oh, yeah. So how, given the dynamics of this leadership and the kind of undermining of the original goals that you had, how will, will Irvine, specifically the city council's leadership in, in mind, be able to meet our greenhouse gas emission reductions goals by 2030. Are we on track or are we falling off now? People need to think about that. We are not on track at all. So I will say, and, and you maybe have had guests who've talked about this, the Irvine City Council a year ago adopted what's called the Achieves Resolution, where they pledged to bring the city to carbon neutrality by 2030. And that was definitely a very bold goal. I really appreciate it. We need to to be hitting the ground running to make that happen. Um, OCPA is integral to this because not only does it reduce greenhouse gases, but it will also generate the revenue to pay for the environmental programs that we need to reduce the other sources of greenhouse gas in the city. Um, Right now, I'm very concerned, first of all, because of OCPA. Um, I've been seeing on social media, a lot of people are saying that they're opting out. Um, The more people who opt out, the potentially the more greenhouse gases are going to be released to the atmosphere. So there's that. I can understand why they would opt out. But nevertheless, it is an issue. Um, And then also, I don't know, you know, to what extent the, the leadership of OCPA and the city council is committed to Um, investing in these other environmental programs that are needed. And I sit on the um, City of Irvine's Green Ribbon Environmental Committee, and in our meetings, you know, most or if not all of the other committee members, including me, have said, we are very concerned that our city is not moving fast enough on these programs to meet our goals. Okay, so that's that's one major area, and it's 17 days. But I am actually collecting all the literature I'm getting from Southern California Edison and OCPA, and I've yeah. got one board member on speed dial, and I'm keep sending back to Susan Sani my experience interpreting jargon, mm-hmm. uh, third contract. But that's that's a consumer part. This is not a voter question. I guess. so. I want to say I really appreciate Susan Sani's 
work on OCPA. She has been doing her best. And Fred Jung's showing leadership too. So, not not as much? Okay. Well, that's all right. Okay. I was led otherwise in uh, his presence. In, but I think in your campaign, you're probably picking up on this has become a tribal thing, though. We want it yeah. to crash and burn, but or there's the crowd that says, we want renewables, and we'll mm-hmm. do anything we can to to have 100% renewable. So how are you as a candidate dealing with that kind of tribalism going on? Oh, it is really tough. I mean, people feel so strongly either way. And I have to say, like, I can empathize with both groups. They they have legitimate reasons. The people who are saying we need to go full speed ahead with OCPA, do not worry about the leadership. It's going to be okay. It's more important to fight climate change. I understand where they're coming from. I mean, there is a real concern that I also share. And then there are people who are saying that they don't trust OCPA because of these leadership issues and transparency issues. And so they don't want to be a part of it. And I understand that, too. They want to be safe. They want to make sure that their money is well spent. They want to make sure that they have appropriate expertise directing energy to their homes so they don't lose power when they really need it. And so basically, I just try to empathize with both groups. And I have not actually come out with a recommendation one way or another on whether people should opt out because I think it's so it's a very individual choice. Well, that's uh, that I read loudly and clearly, and that's actually that describes I am I am not decided. Yeah. I have not. I'm, and when people ask me, because I'm looking after some senior friends, yeah. this is way too much for them to sort out. So I'm trying to sort this out on behalf. And so these are all voters. This is voters and consumers colliding here. So this leads to the next super hard question about its democratic values as expressed on our city council. Mm -hmm. And I have had the mayor on. It was at her request because she uh, did not uh, appreciate the coverage I gave. One of your colleagues was talking about the kinds of companies she's keeping. And so the the democratic values as expressed by the company various candidates make, including the, the mayor's keeping, democratic values expressed in how many votes does it take to agendize something, Democratic values in terms of who gets to speak for how long before the public. There's a lot of people that are getting cut off. So Mm -hmm. as a candidate, as an elected official, how do you foster democratic values to be recognizable and operationalized in our city council? Yeah, I have to say I'm very much in favor of all the values that you mentioned. And I watch every city council meeting because I want to be sure that I can hit the ground running if I'm elected. And I do, I, I feel terrible at the end of many of them because you know, the speakers are being cut off or not treated very cordially. It seems like um, certain members of the city council are actually antagonistic to the constituents. It makes me feel terrible. They're fighting up there. Um, and the, you know, the silencing of individual commu- uh, city council members because For a long time, there was a rule where we needed to have two city council members to agendize an issue. That was very troubling to me as well. And so I'm really hoping that I can get on the city council along with enough allies there to make some serious changes and, and basically make sure that the right of the residents to speak to the city council and to ask the city council for help is upheld. And I think that that is the most foundational thing that I can advocate for. Well, and you know, the the fact of the democratic, th- these kinds of things are sort of undermining confidence yeah. in how things are being done. And so when we have before us, there's, I'm going to put out too many and you can take your pick. There's the all-American asphalt emissions, like what is going on? What Now, what kind yeah. of data is being collected? What kind of monitoring? What was the, the sale, the leasing provisions there? What are, um, we are, we've got a broadband contract mm-hmm. that it's not clear, you know, what's going on. There's that. Yeah. There's, there's so many questions about what is, I'm trying to think, there's a third one that's not coming mm-hmm. to my mind right now. So is, so take any of those as a case study about how you yeah. as a council member would be transacting these various 
topics. Yeah, I think fundamentally you have to have some trust in your elected officials. And I can understand why many people don't trust elected officials as a rule because, you know, politicians don't have the greatest reputation. Um, but in this case, we it really does seem like a lot of these decisions are not transparent. And so it's hard to understand why the city council members are making the decisions that they are. I actually had a student intern um, working with my campaign, and he was very interested in poli-sci and social science. And um, he ended up analyzing the all-American asphalt situation. I wanted his help with how can we turn this around? How can we rebuild trust with the community? And when he went back and looked at the track record for this whole issue with the city council, you could see the residents just over and over and over again have been sidelined or marginalized or felt like they hadn't been told the truth to. And it's reasonable for them to not feel like they can trust the decisions that are made. And so my hope is that we can, first of all, reinstill those Brown Act policies that are so vital for making sure that people feel heard at city council, but then also to meeting with them individually and, if necessary, sitting down at a negotiating table where we have all the stakeholders and we can all be open about our needs and what we really hope for. Um, I would like to continue that process. So there is, and I asked this in going into the 2020 election, I asked us the slate that was then, the candidates, and actually I, I got to ask a three quarters of, I got them on uh, the show in, going into 2020 for the Irvine City Council, but I want to find out what your position, Kathleen Tresseter, is about at-large versus municipal yeah. districts for the City Council. Oh, we definitely need districts, 100%. I mean, I can just tell you from my experience. So I started, I had to start campaigning a year and a half ago. Um, the reason is that our city is so large, this actually ends up being one of the largest city council races in the state. Whoa. Because the city is large and it's at large. Um, in addition, our um, donation limits are very low at 550. Now, I'm a, I'm a strong proponent of contribution limits, but these are also one of the lowest contribution limits for city councils in California. So that means that I had to start a year and a half ago calling people and fundraising just to get enough money to communicate with all the voters in the city. And I think that the voters should be communicated with. They should have the opportunity to get to know their candidates. And you can't do that if people are trying to um, communicate with the entire city. In addition, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of privilege. I have a job with flexible hours, and I could do this. But people who have to work you know, very rigid hours or two jobs, there's no way they could run for city council without getting backing of special interests um, the way it's currently set up. I would love to have this be more accessible to potential candidates. And add seats? Yes, we should definitely add seats. How many? Um, two at least. Two at least. Yeah. I would like to see it go up to seven or maybe nine if possible. Um, again, if you look at the number of residents who are represented per city council member in Orange County, Irvine has one of the lowest, um, has actually the lowest number of city council members per, per capita. capita. Yeah. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Kathleen Tresseter, candidate for Irvine City Council. Her day job is UCI Ecology and Evolutionary Scientist, and she's a Chancellor's Fellow and the leader of the Tresseter Lab. So I want to know about, we got the, that position there. So you know what the hard, this, those were hard questions. Here's, the, here's one that's oddly hard is, how are you getting people to vote down ballot? It's challenging, and I understand it. So I've been in that situation as well. So, you know, you hear a lot about Katie Porter, of course, uh, the president, so forth, the governor. But then once you get down to these lower ballot races, there is very little information. And if people want to vote particularly with one party versus another, these races are deliberately nonpartisan, which I agree with. But then that makes it hard for people to assess 
whether, um, you know, what sort of values are lined up with the candidates. So we have been, uh, we are planning to do a fair bit of get out the vote work um, a couple of days before the election deadline to make sure that we can get everybody out there who may be interested in having their voices heard. And incidentally, I did get out the vote canvassing for the primary, and I got sent to your house, Claudia. <laughs> and I thought... I wasn't there. She's, well, you weren't there, but I was like, I know she's going to vote. So I just put down there that you're... That I was pretty sure that you would head to the polls. Yeah, I... I don't not vote. I vote. I yeah. Yeah. The only time. Well, never mind. The only, the only time it was so structurally impossible. I was in, in another country and oh. in the early aughts. The, but that's that's it. I just to full disclosure. But no, I do not miss them. And I'm all yeah. about making all of the students around here habitual voters. Sooner's better yep. than later. Yeah. Kiddos. Exactly. So, how can people follow you? And what are some upcoming events to? introduce yourself to more people and I'm, I'm and in doing that I just also am interested in how if the ballots vote by mail ballots are going out mm -hmm. early though you you may want to move up your deadline for the get out the vote effort <laughs> yeah no that's true so we will be doing we're actually doing a practice get out the vote run this upcoming weekend so this is an important event and so if people want to volunteer at all, um, the nice thing is that Katie Porter and Katrina Foley and I are all coordinating our campaigns. So if a person volunteers for one of us, you end up volunteering for all of us. And so we're doing a practice run. If you are interested, please go to KathleenTraceder.com and go to the volunteer page and just put your information in. And then we will definitely contact you. But yeah, I agree. Um, the The vote by mail process is so important and really great for voters' rights. It does complicate our strategies a bit, but I'm happy to have that complication. Okay. Well, I have more questions than time, but this is, um, it's been such a pleasure to have you. You're our leadoff candidate here for the 2020 midterms. Thanks for your time and coming in studio with me today, Kathleen. Yeah, thank you for having me. My guest was Kathleen Traceder, UCI Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Scientist, Chancellor's Fellow and Leader of the Traceder Lab, candidate for the Irvine City Council, one of what she, I think there's only six that I could see for the two seats, on the ballot November 8th, eight short weeks from now. That's my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on UCI, the four, well, he was a UCI professor at one time. He's at UCLA. Uh, Randall Crane is running in our local Metropolitan Water District 5. That's MODOC for short, that organization. Those, that's where all the people sit in that boardroom up in L.A. and decide what happens to the Colorado River. Then on the second segment, Brenda Lynn, one of several candidates running for mayor of Irvine talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding.